Good evening and welcome to Rare Book School 1998 Summer Session, Week 4. We'll have our usual three lectures this week. Michael Turner, oh, excuse me, Michael Winship speaking tonight. Paul Needham giving the 1998 Malkin Lecture on Wednesday and myself holding forth on Thursday. Wednesday's lecture, the Malkin Lecture, uh, will be in this room from this podium and the Thursday lecture will be in 201 Clemens Library. Our speaker this evening, no stranger to these shores, is Michael Winship, professor of English at the University of Texas. It's a great pleasure to welcome him back. I should say that if you came to hear Michael Turner, please feel free to leave. <laughs> I, I, I would gladly sit here and listen to him. Uh, since I last spoke here, which I think was two years ago, uh, Terry had the occasion to come to Texas to give a lecture. And as it worked out, I was allowed to uh, introduce him. It was a delicious moment. <laughs> um, before we get going, I'd like to ask, how many of you have read Uncle Tom's Cabin? Oh, that's, I'm very pleased. It's certainly a monument, it has a monumental place in American culture. And even if you have not read it, I suspect you're familiar with many of the characters and scenes from the book. The angelic little Eva, whose death is so memorable. Mischievous Topsy, who explains herself with, I just reckons I's so wicked. The cruel slave driver, Simon Legree, you can hiss now, who orders Uncle Tom to be whipped to death. And Uncle Tom himself, who accepts his fate and proves his humanity through Christian humility. Since I do not subscribe to the school of bibliography that believes that you should never read the books you analyze, I thought I would begin this evening with a brief reading from Uncle Tom's Cabin. It's of a well-known scene, Eliza escaping with her young son from the slave state of Kentucky to the free soil of Ohio, to the Underground Railroad, and north to Canada. You'll remember that her owner, Mr. Shelby, has been forced by financial troubles to sell Uncle Tom and Harry, Eliza's son, to the slave trader, Haley. Eliza decides to escape with Harry, leaving home and husband behind, while Tom accepts his fate, sacrificing himself to save Shelby's farm. When Eliza arrives at the Ohio River, it's winter, she discovers that she cannot cross by boat because the ice, nor by ice, because the ice has broken up. Haley is in hot pursuit, assisted by Sam and Andy, two of Shelby's slaves. I suppose I should say that Sam and Andy signify assistance to Haley since there keep being these inexplicable delays. This is Harriet Beecher Stowe. In consequence of all the various delays, it was about three quarters of an hour after Eliza had laid her child to sleep in the village tavern that the party came riding into the same place. Eliza was standing by the window, looking out in another direction, when Sam's quick eye caught a glimpse of her. Haley and Andy were two yards behind. At this crisis, Sam contrived to have his hat blown off and uttered a loud and characteristic ejaculation, which startled her at once. She drew suddenly back. The whole train swept by the window round to the front door. 
A thousand lives seemed to be concentrated in that one moment to Eliza. Her room opened by a side door to the river. She caught her child and sprang down the steps towards it. The trader caught a full glimpse of her just as she was disappearing down the bank and throwing himself from his horse and calling loudly on Sam and Andy, he was after her like a hound after a deer. In that dizzy moment, her feet to her scarce seemed to touch the ground, and a moment brought her to the water's edge. Right on behind they came, and nerved with strength such as God gives only to the desperate, with one wild cry and flying leap, she vaulted sheer over the turbid current by the shore onto the raft of ice beyond. It was a desperate leap impossible to anything but madness and despair. And Haley, Sam, and Andy instinctively cried out and lifted up their hands as she did it. The huge green fragment of ice on which she alighted pitched and creaked as her weight came on it. But she stayed there not a moment. With wild cries and desperate energy, she leaped to another and still another cake, stumbling, leaping, slipping, springing upwards again. Her shoes are gone, her stockings cut from her feet, while blood marked every step, but she saw nothing, felt nothing, till dimly, as in a dream, she saw the Ohio side and a man helping her up the bank. Please turn. <laughs> She's getting there. Um, the Ohio side and a man helping her up the bank. You're a brave gal now, whoever you are, said the man with an oath. Eliza recognized the voice and face of a man who owned a farm not far from her old home. Oh, Mr. Syme, save me, do save me, do hide me, said Eliza. Why, what's this, said the man, why, if taint Shelby's gal. My child, this boy, he sold him. There is his master, said she, pointing to the Kentucky shore. Oh, Mr. Symes, you've got a little boy. So I have, said the man, as he roughly but kindly drew her up the steep bank. Besides, you're a right brave gal. I like grit, whatever I see it. When they had gained the top of the bank, the man paused. I'd be glad to do something for you, said he, but then there's nowhere I can take ye. The best I can do is to tell you to go thar, said he, pointing to a large white house which stood by itself off the main street of the village. Go thar. They're kind folks. There's no kind of danger, but they'll help you. They're up to all sorts of things. Lord bless you, said Eliza earnestly. No occasion, no occasion in the world, said the man. What I've done's of no account. And oh, surely, sir, you won't tell anyone. Go to thunder, gal. What do you take a fellow for? In course not, said the man. Come now, go along like a likely sensible gal as you are. You've earned your liberty, and you shall have it for all me. The woman folded her child to her bosom and walked firmly and swiftly away. The man stood and looked after her. Shelby now maybe won't think this here the most neighborly thing in the world, but what's a feller to do? If he catches one of my gals in the same fix, he's welcome to pay back. Somehow I never could see no kind of critter a striving and panting and trying to clar their cells with the dogs after them and go again them. Besides, I don't see no kind of occasion for me to be hunter and catcher for other folks, neither. So spoke this poor, heathenish Kentuckian, who had not been instructed in his constitutional relations, and consequently was betrayed into acting in a sort of Christianized manner, which, if he had been better situated and more enlightened, he would not have been left to do. There's plenty more.
In March 1892, the publishers of Uncle Tom's Cabin had a very nasty shock. On the first of the month, a brief article in the National Advertiser, an otherwise undistinguished magazine, announced a remarkable discovery. It was discovered by accident a few year, days ago that Uncle Tom's Cabin, one of the most profitable books ever published in the United States, was not and never has been legally copyrighted. This claim turned out to have been false, but nevertheless raises a number of interesting questions. What had been the publishing history of this important anti-slavery work during the decades following the Civil War and emancipation? Indeed, how profitable a book was Uncle Tom's Cabin in the early 1890s, 40 years after its first publication? What actions did Stowe's publisher, Houghton Mifflin and Company, take to protect her copyright in response to this announced remarkable discovery? And what happened when the book finally did enter into the public domain? Literary historians, bibliographers, and historians of the book spend a great deal of time investigating the circumstances of the original appearance of a text, but it can also be profitable to look at its publishing history over time. If that text is Uncle Tom's Cabin, it has much to teach us of how copyright and the literary marketplace interact. This evening, I will explore the publishing history of that work from its first publication until it entered the public domain at the end of the century. The early publishing history of Uncle Tom's Cabin is well known. It was first published serially in the National Era, an abolitionist newspaper published in Washington, D.C., appearing from the 5th of June, 1851, to the 1st of April, 1852. On the 20th of March, 1852, before the final two serial installments had appeared, it was published in book form in two volumes by John P. Jewett of Boston. Right from the start, sales of the book took off. By the 1st of April, less than two weeks after publication, a first printing of 5,000 copies was gone, and a second 5,000 had been run off. And it continued to sell. By the end of 1852, 120,000 copies of the two-volume edition had been produced. Jewett had also published the novel in two other forms, a cheap 37-and-a-half-cent one-volume edition for the million, as his advertisement said, and an expensive $2.50 to $5, depending on what binding you bought it in, octavo gift edition, lavishly illustrated by Hammett Billings. In February 1853, Jewett published a German translation, and he and many others were also to issue numerous adaptations, condensations, responses, and other spin-offs. There were prints, songs, statues, even a printed handkerchief. As a play, it was a hit and became one of the most popular and longest-running works of the American popular theater. In England, Stowe's text was reprinted over and over and may have sold as many as one and a half million copies. It was quickly translated and printed throughout Europe and beyond, yes, perhaps even in Siam. So much for Reverend Sidney Smith's irreverent question, who reads an American book? The whole world, it seems, was reading this one. As a publishing phenomenon, there had been nothing like it before. I like to imagine Jewett sort of taking advice, sort of saying, but it, it, I keep printing it and it keeps selling. There's just been nothing like it before. But 
As is so often the case, the myth of Uncle Tom's Cabin conceals a surprising truth. For in the United States, the production and presumably the sale of Stowe's original text seemed to have come to a temporary halt in April of 1853, or soon thereafter. In all, Jewett had printed about 310,000 copies, and no additional copies were needed for almost 10 years. Jewett himself failed during the Panic of 1857, an unexpected and ignominious end for someone who had published what was widely recognized as one of the most popular books of the century. And for the time being, Uncle Tom's Cabin was without a publisher. If this book started the Civil War, as Lincoln is said to have claimed, then it was long out of print when it did so. End of story? No, not at all. In June of 1860, a a little less than a year before the Civil War broke out, Stowe and her family, who had been touring Europe, arranged to return to Boston on the same Cunard packet steamer, the the Europa, as James T. Field, editor of the influential Atlantic Monthly and one of America's premier literary publishers. By the end of the summer, the plates for the two-volume edition of Uncle Tom's Cabin, which were now apparently the property of Stowe, had been transferred by Jewett to Field's firm, Tickner and Fields. Nevertheless, Fields was in no hurry to reprint the book. And it was not until November 1862, after minor corrections and alterations to the plates, that an impression of only 270 270 copies was run off. The following March, Stowe signed a contract with Tickner and Fields. The firm agreed to pay 18 cents on every copy sold, which works out to a 12% royalty. And in return, the firm was to be the sole publisher of the work in the United States, as long as the copyright remained in force. This is how Uncle Tom's Cabin became part of the list of canonical American literary works that scholars have come to associate with Houghton Mifflin and Company, the firm that Tickner and Fields eventually evolved into. These successive firms were to remain Stowe's primary publishers through the end of the century, and unlike poor J.P. Jewett, who died in poverty in 1884, they and Stowe reaped the financial benefits as the work was transformed from bestseller to steady seller and from anti-slavery propaganda to a classic of American literature. As we've seen, the initial Tickner and Fields printing was modest indeed, 270 copies, and sales were not spectacular during the 1860s. There were 13 printings in all that decade, producing just under 8,000 copies. Stowe earned $1,230 in royalties, the publisher roughly $5,740. During the 1870s, things picked up a little. A further 19,500 copies were produced in 25 printings, paying Stowe $3,463 in royalties and roughly $13,750 to the firm. In early 1878, the plates were inventoried with the formation of a new partnership, Houghton Osgood and Company, and were valued at $4,525. That figure really represents the value of the firm's right to act as sole publisher of the text, however. For the plates, still the original ones cast for Jewett in 1852 were now very worn and battered, 
and were finally replaced in 1879. If you want to see how worn and battered they were in the 70s, this copy was printed in 1873. The decision to make new plates coincided with the expiration of the original copyright, which had now run for 28 years. Both author and publisher were much concerned that papers for a renewal of 14 years were filed correctly and in timely fashion. For the new edition, the Houghton firm prepared new illustrations in editorial matter, an introductory account of the work, stressing its national and international impact, written anonymously by Stowe, and a bibliography of editions of the work by George Bullen of the British Museum Library. This new edition was issued in two forms, a red-lined holiday edition at $3.50 and a cheaper library edition for $2. A special subscription edition was issued in 1882, almost certainly also printed from these plates, which altogether were eventually to produce just over 72,000 copies in a variety of formats before they were melted in 1909. In 1885, another new set of plates was made for a cheaper, popular edition, which sold at $1 in cloth and 50 cents in paper. These plates were still in use in 1970, by which time they had produced over 202,000 copies in 55 different printings. These figures are impressive and show that Uncle Tom's Cabin continued to have steady, popular appeal. In 1886, Houghton Mifflin issued this little advertising flyer calling Uncle Tom's Cabin the most popular of stories and claiming that they had sold 80,000 copies in two years. And I have to thank uh, Mary Cooper Gillen and Gillian Kyle for finding this for me. Uh, in the five-year period from 1886 through 1890, a total of nearly 110,000 copies were sold, Stowe earning $13,325 in royalties, which was nearly two and a half times the combined royalties on all her other books that were published by the firm. Sales and Stowe's earnings were relatively steady year by year. In this five-year period, they ranged from 29,500 copies to just under 22,400 copies, earning for Stowe just over $3,080 in 1889 to just under $2,400 in 1890. It's impossible to establish the exact amount of the publisher's profits on Uncle Tom's Cabin during these years, but clearly Houghton Mifflin had cause to be worried in March 1892 when they read the surprising notice in the National Advertiser. It was discovered by accident a few years, days ago that Uncle Tom's Cabin, one of the most profitable books ever published in the United States, was not and never has been legally copyrighted. Throughout the preceding decades, American trade publishers have been bedeviled by pirates and undersellers who took advantage of the lack of international copyright on British works and the increasing use of trade sales as a means of dumping surplus or out-of-date stock to flood the market with cheap books. As a well-established publisher, Houghton Mifflin was well aware of the losses brought about by these practices, and any threat to its claim to the right to act as the sole legal publisher of Uncle Tom's Cabin had to be taken very seriously indeed. Lawyers were called in. 
and after taking legal advice, the firm decided to send one of its clerks secretly to the copyright office in Washington to investigate. On the 23rd of March, their clerk, A.G. Wheeler, called an Ainsworth Rand Spofford, the Librarian of Congress, and consulted with him over the matter. Early that afternoon, Wheeler sent off a coded telegram to Boston with the information he had gathered. Allen Cat money but book deposited April 1, 1852. Steep on December 9, 1878. Poor, wire me at Riggs House whether intelligible. Letter by mail. That was the text of his telegram. And that evening he sat down in his hotel room at the Riggs House and wrote a long and detailed account of his meeting. In the course of this letter, Wheeler gives a full and colorful description of the Library of Congress as it was when it was housed in the Capitol building a few years before the Jefferson building was built. And I cannot resist from quoting briefly from this description. The Library of Congress is a medium-sized room for such a large building just off from the dome. Mr. Spofford's desk is a large standing one in the center of the room and its overloaded condition, I thought of Mr. Francis Jackson Garrison. Francis Jackson Garrison was an editor at Houghton Mifflin and also a son of William Lloyd Garrison. I find it very nice to think that Stowe was dealing with William Lloyd Garrison's son so many years later. Um, its overloaded condition shows what a heavy pressure of work he must be under. His room was filled with a number of persons coming and going and with a number of clerks at desks and about an alcove. The condition of the room as regards the piles of books, magazines, papers, etc. lying around in apparent disorder was dreadful. The whole place is overcrowded and the clerical force seems entirely inadequate. When I first went in, I stood around with something of the air of a sightseer. The capital seemed full of them and took note of the clerks and tried to pick out Mr. Spofford from the rest. The clerk struck me as being, for the most part, rather heavy, plodding sort of men, most of them between 25 and 35, and their appearance was quite the reverse of spruce. They somehow seemed to me to look like less intelligent men than I expected to find. I don't know whether the Library of Congress has changed or not. In this setting, Wheeler sat down with Spofford and attempted a private consultation over the copyright status of Uncle Tom's cabin. Secrecy was of the highest order. Spofford consulted the copyright records, which proved that the title had been entered in the District of Maine in the name of Mrs. H.B. Stowe on the 12th of May, 1851. A copy of the published book had been deposited on the 1st of April, 1852. Alan Cap, a book but deposited April 1, 1852 in the Telegram's Code. But no copy of the National Era, where the text had been originally serialized, had been deposited. The records also showed that after running for 28 years from the date of original entry, the copyright had been renewed for another 14 years. Among the Massachusetts records was a receipt for two copies deposited on the 9th of December, 1878 steep on December 9, 1878 in code, which had been sent to perfect the entry made in November for the renewal from May 12, 1879. For a small fee, Spofford prepared a certified copy of this information, but although everything looked in order, 
he refused to venture an opinion on the legal validity of the copyright. When pressed, and Wheeler pressed him several times, he merely stated, that's a matter for the courts to settle. He did, however, pass along some important information. Wheeler reports, a few months ago, Mr. J.S. Ogilvie, representing the U.S. book company, he believed, came there and consulted the D.C. and Massachusetts records and found no entry in either in 1851 and jumped at the conclusion that no entry had been made. It never seemed to occur to him, so Mr. Spofford says, to look in the main or any other records. He further said that about a month ago, a New York lawyer had been there looking for information regarding the book, but he didn't know what he had found out. He thinks Ogilvy inspired the article in the National Advertiser. The writer of the article evidently knew nothing of the main record and probably didn't look for a renewal in 1879, recorded, of course, in 1878. With this information and a copy of the original certificate in hand, Houghton and Mifflin issued a warning to the trade by taking a full-page advertisement in Publishers Weekly on the 16th of April, 1892. As certain statements have recently appeared in a New York newspaper which give the impression and have created the belief in the minds of many persons that the copyright on Mrs. Stowe's world-famous novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, has expired or is non-existent, the undersigned hereby give notice that there is no foundation in fact for the assertions that have been made. Copyright was originally and duly issued to Mrs. Stowe. It was duly reissued to her on the expiration of the first term of 28 years, as is shown by the official certificates in our possession, and it has still a considerable period to run. Mrs. Stowe's interest in the work continues without abatement, and she receives a royalty on every copy sold. Any attempt to reprint Uncle Tom's Cabin before the expiration of copyright will be illegal and an infringement on the rights of Mrs. Stowe and ourselves and will be promptly prosecuted by us. The trade and public are hereby cautioned against buying any editions except those published by the undersigned. A list of the firm's editions of Uncle Tom's Cabin is printed below the notice. In this same issue, the editors of Publishers Weekly comment briefly on the situation. It's easy to see how a statement that the copyright had already expired would be a very serious injury to the publishers by leading the trade to anticipate the immediate publication of editions of the famous story yet cheaper than those which they have just published. This announcement will reassure the trade you will see that it is entirely safe for them to continue to handle the editions of Uncle Tom's Cabin of Houghton Mifflin and Company without any danger of being troubled by rival cheaper editions. A month later, on the 14th of May, in a second advertisement in Publishers Weekly, Houghton Mifflin printed a card to the trade. It gives the legal opinions of eminent counsel Honorable Edmund H. Bennett, Dean of the Law School at Boston University, and Charles C. Beeman, Esquire, of the law firm of Everts, Choate, and Beeman, New York, that the facts in the case of Uncle Tom's Cabin would enable Houghton Mifflin to obtain an injunction against any person who shall print, publish, sell, or expose for sale any copy of said book 
within the term of said copyright. This seems to have settled the matter, at least for the time being. But all was not well, and the firm was careful in these warnings not to provide too much information. The copyright still has a considerable period to run, it had claimed in Publishers Weekly. But although Uncle Tom's Cabin was still protected by copyright in May of 1892, the fact was that it would enter the public domain on the 12th of May, 1893. However profitable a steady seller the book had been over many years for Stowe and Houghton Mifflin, their control over its publication had only one more year to run. This gear could only have served to bring this fact home to publisher and author alike. How did the firm react to the situation? Its strategy was to issue a variety of new editions, which taken together with those already being published would fill every market niche. Already in late 1891, a new two-volume illustrated deluxe holiday edition printed from fresh plates had been published. This was expensive at the retail price of $4, but the firm also issued a limited large paper edition signed by Stowe at $10. But as the editors of Publishers Weekly had pointed out, the real competition would be at the other end of the market. And in February 1892, the price of the standard library edition was reduced to $1.50 from $2. That same month, another new edition, the universal edition, was published at 50 cents in cloth and 25 in paper. This is a long work. The plates of this new edition were also used to produce copies for issue in the Riverside paper series at 50 cents. But later that year, plans were underway for an even cheaper edition. A letter to Charles Stowe, who by this time was managing his ailing mother's affair, explains the firm's plans for this edition. It is also to be said that the book will probably sell in channels not usually open to our higher-priced publications. We hope that the results will bring a fair return to us both, and that the edition will serve to discourage reprinters who, of course, have no thought of paying your mother a cent, and to protect the other higher-priced editions of which we trust and believe the sale will not entirely cease when the copyright has run out. And with our popular dollar edition and two illustrated editions, besides the universal and this little classic on hand, we shall certainly have a sufficient variety of styles to offer to the public. For emphasis, the point is repeated in a postscript. If this new edition is successful and prevents unworthier editions from getting a foothold in the market, it can hardly fail to ensure to the advantage and continued sale of our better editions. The new cheap edition, the Brunswick edition, priced at 30 cents in cloth, was finally ready in March 1893. And by the time the copyright expired just a month and a half later, over 38,000 copies had been printed. Did the strategy succeed? Immediate returns must have been gratifying. For many years, Stowe's royalties on Uncle Tom's Cabin had ranged between $2,000 and $3,000 per annum. But in 1892, chiefly as a result of the new Universal Edition, her earnings were 
$6,700. However, the publication of the Brunswick edition in 1893 brought the sales of the Universal edition to a near halt. Although 53,500 copies of the Brunswick edition had been sold by the end of October, its retail price of only 30 cents meant that it paid a very low royalty, and Stowe's earnings on the work for 1893 fell only to $2,400. Although the firm was to remain a major publisher of Uncle Tom's Cabin after the copyright expired, sales of all Houghton Mifflin editions fell off markedly as they had more and more to compete with a range of new editions published by firms such as Altimus, Burt, Caldwell, Coates, Kroll, Dominion, Fenno, Hill, Lupton, McKay, Mershon, Neely, Page, Rand, Rutledge, Warren, Ziegler, a veritable catalog of the chief publishers operating at the turn of the century. In 1894, Stowe's earnings fell to $900 the following year to just under 700. In February of 1896, Stowe assigned the copyright in all of her works, including Uncle Tom's Cabin, to Houghton Mifflin and Company for $1. In exchange, the firm agreed to pay her $10,000 over four years in quarterly payments of $625. Given Stowe's recent earnings, this arrangement was generous on the part of the firm, for when Stowe died on the 1st of July, 1896, the profits and royalties from what must have been one of the most valuable American literary copyrights of the 19th century had all but played themselves out. Among American publishers, Houghton Mifflin and Company is famous for having been the publisher of many of the 19th century literary works that have come to be recognized as part of our national literary canon. Indeed, some scholars have argued that Houghton Mifflin was largely instrumental in the formation of that canon. In the 1890s, Uncle Tom's Cabin was certainly a part of that list. But as taste and values changed with the 20th century, Uncle Tom's Cabin came to seem a literary curiosity old-fashioned, overly religious and sentimental, and blatantly racist. Perhaps an interesting social document, but certainly not a work of any lasting literary value. The numerous cheap editions available on the market must have done little to change this impression. In this regard, it is not unlike the poetry of Longfellow, Whittier, or should I say Lucille, which was also published by Houghton Mifflin and Company which has also widely reprinted in cheap editions and which has now generally come to be viewed as having no real literary value. Who then could have known that after a century in the public domain, Uncle Tom's Cabin would once again be considered part of the canon of 19th century American literature, taking its place next to the work of Emerson, Hawthorne, Thoreau, works that were also published by Houghton Mifflin and Company. Who could have imagined that a Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist and critic writing recently in Harper's Magazine would argue that it is a better novel even than Mark Twain's Adventures of Huckleberry Finn? But that curious development and the related shift in the audience for Uncle Tom's Cabin from popular to academic will have to make the subject of another talk. <laughs>